What is up, folks? Justin Kana back with you for another episode of the Repertoire Podcast. My guest today is Miles Snyder. Miles was one of my early TikTok follows. And this was right when I was kind of, you know, getting into researching what it would be like to cook vertical content on some of these social media platforms. And, you know, Miles talks about how his relationship with TikTok has changed over time. But, you know, here on the Repertoire Podcast, we gas our guests up. And so to talk about Miles just for a hot second here, he is a chef who was born in the Midwest, similar to, to where I was born. And he also ultimately ended up studying in Mexico and then cooking in a open wood fire kind of kitchen setup. And it was not just open fire, but it was fine dining. It was in a country where he didn't speak the language. And there's so much to learn from Miles in how he navigated that chapter in his career. And then ultimately to what he's doing now in doing culinary coaching for people that want to cook, improve their ability to cook at home, how he's thinking about doing pop-up dinners, how he's thinking about health and making sure that he can continue to cook for years to come. There's so much to enjoy. And, and even being like tech savvy, there's so much to, to, take away from this conversation and we, we we cover a wide range of topics i even th- think we talk about crypto for a little bit in this conversation so if you're interested in that that kind of cross-section between creating stuff online doing things in person and trying to find that balance where it's like you don't live a life that's exclusively on the internet and then also you're not unleveraged at all being a chef that's just like just behind the stove all day. I think that there's a lot of insights that you can glean from this conversation. And so if you want to check out Miles, you want to check out his Substack, you want to follow him on Twitter or any of the other specific linkable things that we discussed, I highly recommend you check out the show notes. Those are always available just below in the description of this podcast. And without further ado, let's learn from Miles. Listen, as much as I know I say we're in the food business, in a lot of ways we're in the people business. And what that often requires is team management. Between trying to get the latest schedule out the door, keeping track of all the time off requests your team puts in, and finding out where your labor is tracking for the day, it can be all so overwhelming. Seven Shifts is that secret weapon type tool that's your operation's best asset. Let Seven Shifts help you streamline your team's work schedule. If you want to see the difference in your team's productivity and satisfaction, Seven Shifts is giving you listeners a three-month free trial of their the works tier which I'm actually super stoked on because it's unlimited employees on this trial so it's not like other trials where you kind of just get a little bit of the stuff you can do this with unlimited employees regardless of the size of your business so you can really kick the tires on the product and test all the great features like payroll integration and advanced reporting visit joinrepertoire.com slash seven shifts that's the number seven s-h-i-f-t-s or you can easily just click the link in the description of this podcast to try seven shifts now and see the difference for yourself thanks so much to seven shifts for sponsoring this episode miles snyder welcome to the show thanks for coming on thanks for having me I wanted to, you, you are pretty open with giving your background in restaurants on some of your social media accounts. And so folks can do a little bit of a deep dive there. And it's not like we're not going to touch on your background. I just am not a huge fan of doing the like, tell us about your background, start your yeah, podcast. Yeah. So I, I would love to start with your time at Heartwood sure. just to kind of set the stage a little bit. I'd love for you to talk about either your favorite day at Heartwood, if one <laughs> comes to mind, or a day at Heartwood where you learned a lesson that really impacted you and you still take that lesson with you to this day. Yeah, I guess I'll start with the latter. So when I, so I started at Hartwood right after I'd finished this very short culinary school program in Mexico City. So, you know, I wasn't classically trained. I didn't go to like CIA or do a, a long program like that. And so I went the, down there and I think I was very naive about what it was going to entail. I mean, I thought that I was going to be like living in a cool beach town and casually cooking at this restaurant. Can you just um, set the scene for where Hartwood is too? Yeah, yeah, sorry. So Hartwood is in Tulum, Mexico. It's an open fire restaurant built basically in the jungle in Tulum. There's a little bit of electricity, but not very much. 
very few appliances, no, you know, no stove, just a wood-fired oven and a wood-fired grill. So it's a very sort of like rustic, but really, really good restaurant doing some exceptional food. But when I started there, I was, I was, I got immediately put onto fish duty. So I was like scaling, gutting and filleting fish all day, every day. And the original plan was that I was going to be doing that for however many months until, you know, the executive chef decided to move me up. And I, one of the guys who was working on the line, like two weeks into me being there, two or three weeks, this guy who was working on the line quit. So I'm in the back doing fish and the chef who I was terrified of at the time comes up to me and he goes, you know, the a spot on the line opened up. You're going to start tonight. You have two days to learn that station. Don't fuck it up. And I remember just being so nervous about it because this was the, you know, it, it, the this kitchen setup of Hartwood isn't like traditional because there's, you know, just the way that it, it works. But this would be kind of like a garde manger type of station. And there was like, like 60 different individual things on this station, you know, different like herbs and pickles and this and that that you had to prep. And so I remember just like going with a notebook and like drawing a diagram of everything and like, you know, just... In my mind, it felt like it would be impossible to do that quickly. And long story short is that I ended up being able to do it. And, you know, I started on the line that night. And within a couple of days, I had like mastered the station. I was able to prep everything and all that. And what I took away from that experience was was basically that like the sort of self-imposed like limitations you have around being able to do certain things or learn certain things really quickly, they they're they're often kind of like these limiting beliefs. And that wasn't the only time at Hartwood that I learned that, but I think there were a bunch of things from that experience that made me realize like, okay, if you're motivated enough and you work hard enough, you can you can learn things in a crazy short amount of time. I know you said long story short, but if we could make long story long just for like a, a quick second here, what other kind of like self-talk things are going through your head as you get that request? What are some other kind of like questions that you either asked in the moment or if you had to look back and be like miles man you should have asked this question like you you could have saved yourself so much headache when that opportunity presented itself to you had you just been aware to blank yeah okay so i think the first one was that the most of the other chefs who were like on the line at hardwood were what i would call like classically trained you know they went to like cooking school in the united states and they had done like the four-year program and like, I'm definitely not classically trained. So there was, there's a lot of just like stuff from the traditional French technique canon that I was like totally unaware of. And I was, I was very like ashamed of that, you know, and I wanted to hide it. And so I thought that everyone else knew so much more than I did. And so I was like afraid to ask a lot of questions because I thought they were going to be really stupid questions. And I didn't want to, I didn't want people to be aware of my lack of knowledge. So basically what I ended up doing is like stumbling through a bunch of stuff that I had to do the hard way or learn the hard way or like figure out on my own when I actually could have asked. And I think in maybe in some of those situations that was appropriate, but definitely in a lot of situations, I, I, I honestly could have just asked one of my coworkers and they would have happily helped me out. And even when I look back now with, with what I do know, like not all of those were stupid questions. Some of them were just, you know, perfectly fine questions that if I had been willing to ask, I think would have made my life a lot easier. <laughs> do you have anything else on that topic? Because I get those questions too, man. I'll, I'll get a DM from somebody and they'll be like, hey, Justin, I just took this job and I'm going to stay for three years in mm -hmm. this with, you know, like these, these arbitrary, I call it tenure guilt. Yep. So you have this idea in your head of, you know, 
you're going to stay at a place for two years or you're going to you're going to spend five years here and become a sous chef. And I think in a lot of respects that that's beneficial because I've written about this in previous pieces where it's like it's a very clear signaling mechanism to other people that are going to hire you in the future of like Mm -hmm. if you spent a year here. That means that you didn't have enough substance abuse problems that put you into the into jail. You know what I mean? You you, you weren't so much of a scumbag that you lost the restaurant so much money that the, the chef ultimately ended up firing you. You didn't get in a fight with someone in the locker room that made this person, do you know what I mean, like yeah. file a HR suit. So, like, there is a lot of benefit to tenure. I just think, to your point, it is often so arbitrary. And so I guess, do you have any other, like, decision-making frameworks around kind of, like, how you navigated those early days in your career that might be helpful for, for people? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have any like specific frameworks I can point to. I think also I probably had a little bit of a different set of goals than a lot of like other chefs who might be listening to this podcast. I kind of, you know, when I, so I, I went to college and then after college I went to cooking school in Mexico City. And like I said, it was a six month program that was kind of focused on learning about regional Mexican cuisine. And the original plan was just to go do that and then move back and get a job. And I just was having such a good time and learning so much that I really wanted to go actually cook somewhere professionally. I had cooked in restaurants for like summer jobs in high school and stuff, but they were never, they, they weren't very serious places. So, you know, I wanted to get like some experience in a fine dining establishment that was respected and all that. But I had always kind of framed it in my mind as this sort of like learning experience. And it wasn't in my mind as something that I was going to do forever. So I think for me in some ways that made it easier because the like the you know when i had those first few weeks there and i was working 14 hour days and it was so hot and like the physical labor and it was just very overwhelming it was the hardest i'd worked in my life at that point i think if in my mind i thought i'm gonna be doing this forever it would have made it a lot harder whereas in those early days i was just kind of like all right i'm just gonna take this day by day and try and get through it and try and absorb as much as i can the last station in a restaurant that i ever worked at as like a chef de partie was i think it mirrors a lot of what you experienced at heartwood so i had a four burner induction top which was mm-hmm. like probably way techier than what you guys had in the jungle but but I also had a open fire grill set up next to me. And then to the left of that burner setup was like a rationale oven. And so oh, that was like the roast fish protein Were you station. doing wood fire or charcoal? Yeah. No, it was charcoal. And we okay. would do we would do a combination of, of wood at certain points if yep. we wanted additional smoke or stuff like that. But I guess I wanted to touch on the topic of intuitive cooking, yeah. which I've heard you mention and uh, skills that you've developed at, at Heartwood, whether it's to just potentially exemplify the benefits of it towards the person who's like, well, you know, the only experience I have is on like a flat top or yeah. I, I'm, I've only worked gas on gas stoves. And, and I, I give that context so that you know that you can kind of like nerd out on some of these nitty gritty with me. And then, you know, we can potentially expand on it for the audience if we get a little bit too technical. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that w- like, I'm so grateful that I had my first professional my first high level professional cooking experience at Heartwood because of that. Like, I think that learning to cook over open fire is like the, it's just like a crash course in cooking off of your gut and off of your instinct, which I think that that's a great way to cook, even if you are using, you know, these like very precise tools. And the reason for that is like, you know, like I said, we didn't have a a stove. We just had a wood fired grill. So we were doing everything on that. We were grilling, but we were also like frying, we were boiling water, like whatever we had to do that would have been, that would be done on a stovetop in a regular restaurant, we did on a grill. And then we had a wood fired oven. And none of these things had temperature dials. Even for the oven, we didn't have one of those like laser guns or anything. What I think that allowed me to do was learn to not read like measurements, but like 
rely on my senses for how I was cooking with things. And I think that's ultimately a much better way to do it because, you know, th th that means you're going to be, be able to cook in any environment, you know, without screwing it up. So it's like with the wood fired oven, you know, you have to really like feel there and you have to learn that this oven distributes heat in a certain way. And maybe if you put something on one side of the oven, it's going to be slightly cooler than if you put it on the other side of the oven, but it's also going to depend on like how hot the fire is. And then same with, you know, with learning to, to cook over the wood grill. It's like you learn not only how to like build and like lower the heat using fire, but you also learn about the fact that like, you know, say you're boiling water, you can have that pot directly over a flame, but you'd never want to cook a steak over a flame, things right. like that. Right. And so, yeah, I just think it was like, I think there were so many skills that I, that I took away from that, that I still use. I mean, I still love to cook over wood fire when I can, but like at home I have a, I have a gas stove, but those, those same instincts still kick in. You've gone on this ramp before. And I, I, I love the way that you frame this of talking about the difference between like, I call it, I might get actually some flack from this. I call it like twill food where it's like, it's, it's fluid gels and perfectly, you know, molded twills and sous vide proteins yeah. that, that get assembled beautifully, you know, like they, they plate really well, but you've talked about the idea of like imperfection in that comes from, from open fire cooking. Can you go on that rant a little bit just to set the stage? Cause I have a follow-up question there. Yeah, for sure. And <laughs> this is like one of my favorite things to talk about because I, I hold this belief very deeply, but it's not something that's like, it's not based on some kind of like scientific fact or whatever. It's just a, it's an intuitive feeling, but I basically think that there is a lot of beauty in imperfection and there's a certain like soulfulness that comes from cooking in a way that embraces imperfection. And I think that there was this wave in cooking probably from before you and I even started our career, but maybe it's like the El Bouy kind of thing yep. where people took this very scientific approach to cooking and everything was focused on precision. And then you had things like sous vide that it, it's really all about like measuring everything and getting it at this like perfect moment in a way that, that you can dial in. And the, the kind of like quip that I had about it was that like, you know, I think like someone who represents that is like the modernist cuisine guys, right? And I'm sure that those guys are very good chefs and like produce really tasty food. But like, I'd rather eat something that was cooked by Francis Mallman or Chris Bianco or someone like that. And it's almost like, I can't exactly articulate why, but you kind of know it when you see it. There's this like element that, that, that you can't necessarily like put your finger on, but I call like soulfulness to their cuisine. And for me, like open fire, wood fire, it represents a lot of that because you, you, you just can't have precision in that environment, you know, and you have to embrace those imperfections, but those imperfections are what give that food a lot of its character. And to me, that's the most interesting and tastiest stuff that you can eat. Well, it, it's, it's the, what I'm calling twill food at this point. I, we'll see if that sticks. I, I haven't quite decided if that's what I'm going to call it, but it's so tailored for posting online. Right. Because it is, it, it, it yeah, is food yeah. that you can only experience with those two senses of like you can hear it like you make a, a, a chicken skin chip, super crispy, yeah. and you can do it on the, you know, you, know, you do, you you do the crunch thing. Across the top of it, yeah. yeah. And you could see it, you know, like and, and, and it's it's with that that sight and that sound. It's like it's so easy to kind of be able to experience there. But to your point, the, the huge benefits that come if you have an Asador Echibari meal, do you know what I mean? Come yep. from these other senses that you just can't, you know, get through the through the phone screen. Yeah. And I think it also is a little bit of it ties into this conversation of like cooking is art versus cooking is science. Right. And like, obviously, it's both. 
I definitely approach it as, as more of an art. And I just feel that when people lean too far into the cooking as science approach, they lose some of that soulfulness that makes food so interesting. The next point on that topic, which is my follow-up question, I promised, is, I don't know, there's this author, and he's an entrepreneur named Peter Thiel, and he talks about this yeah. idea called the great stagnation. Oh, and yeah. he's talking about technology. But I have this thing that I've been trying to wrestle with, which is like, is open fire cooking the peak of cooking? Like, <laughs> have we in our current evolution as humans and all the technology that we've managed to create, it's funny to me that we've gone backwards and found the fire again, whatever, whatever. But it's kind of like, and I think about I have a pop-up coming up in, in two weeks here, and and I'm kind of theming it around, like, spring ingredients combined with open fire stuff. Because, like, when I think about, like, what do I just get jazzed about cooking? Yeah. It is doing some sort of open fire thing because the technical prowess that you have to have to execute it well, the, the again, tactile nature of just, like, being in it and cooking in that way is just, like, I haven't found anything that's matched it, regardless of the number of, you know, kind of, like, recipes that become available or tools that I could purchase. And so I guess my question to you is like, is that, would you say that that's true or, or is that maybe the wrong question where it's like, is open fire the peak of cooking? Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. I love that. I love that we're talking Peter Thiel on a cooking podcast too. Mm -hmm. This is like, <laughs> yep. this just touches a lot of the different areas of interest that I have. Yeah, yeah. I'm very familiar with that theory. And I think my, my, my overall answer would be, yes, I do think it's the peak of cooking. Like I, I haven't found anything better. Yep. I think something that it makes me think of is that with, I think a lot of the reason for the popularity of certain things like sous vide is a great example is, and actually, you know what else falls in this category is like um, Traeger, air fryer. A lot of these appeal to a certain type of home cook that wants to be able to just like plug something in, get a notification on their phone when it's ready and not have to think about that. And like, I'm not against that per se. You know, if you're busy and you have a full-time job and you have kids and like, you're just trying to put food on the table and you're going to cook food at home. Like that's awesome. And I think any tool that can help you do that in a way that's like easier is something that I'm, I'm in support of. I don't think it makes as much sense for professional chefs though, because like you and I are saying, I think there's, there's a much better way to achieve those outcomes. And, you know, as a chef, you are hopefully not just going for convenience and, and, you know, speed of execution and all that. And you have that room to be able to say like, what is the highest expression of this type of cooking? And for me, that's like almost always wood fire. Yeah, man. I, I just, I guess that where my question comes and what I struggle with when I get to this place of thinking about it in this way is like, should I then therefore attempt to increase my proficiency in open fire cooking because it's like, okay, there is a summit. Mm -hmm. And I experience this sometimes when I go to places where they're like, oh, we have a hearth. And it's like, oh, well, you have like a couple of components that you just like let dry out over the fire when you lit it earlier in today. Yeah. You just like you, you, you lit some charcoal and you put it in some cream and like that's how you made <laughs> yeah. your ice cream. Do you know what I mean? Like you're not yeah. actually genuinely like preparing all of your proteins in this way where you have someone who is just a savage on yeah. the hearth station in the way that like that's what made Cezanne Saison. Yeah. That's what makes Echibari Echibari is like when you go there and experience these things. And so it's like, is there some sort of kind of like, I'm almost thinking that you're the first person I've jammed on this with, but like maybe there's some sort of like proficiency. I don't know how we would like track your skill level on yeah. open fire, but like, is there a way where we could potentially mark that in a way where it's like, oh, well, yeah, this you're, is you're a blue we, belt. You're totally, you're, you know, whatever you're. Black yeah, belt. yeah, yeah. Like I, I play tennis and there's like a ranking with numbers. So you uh -huh. just go, you can be a 2.0, a 2.5, a 3.5, a four or a five, whatever uh, level tennis player. It's like, is there a world where we might have some sort of like, 
you you can get a bunch of you know like food together and if you can prepare it with these sorts of quality standards it's like oh well you get this level of proficiency or is it like okay well this is the arbitrarily defined peak there could be something more and so instead of spending your time like going into this arena and just trying to optimize this to the nines it's like maybe you should spend your time researching other methods of cooking or just like ways of i don't know man but no i i mean it's it's an interesting thing to think about because i don't necessarily have like a perfect answer here but I think that I am definitely wary of trying to like quantify something that feels so inherently unquantifiable. Yes. And I think one of the things that I like about open fire cooking is that it's it's something that can only be like there's no real shortcut to learning it. You know, it's like a skill that you have to master and it takes time to do. And I think in the age of like tech and AI and social media, there's so many people who just want to like find these shortcuts to, to being able to do different things. And a lot of the things that I think people find the most meaning in now are the things where those shortcuts don't exist. And open fire is definitely one of them. I mean, it's like learning to speak a second language, you know, you have to put in the reps and you have to learn to basically like dance with this living, breathing thing that can change on a whim. And there's so many different factors that go into it. And it requires the use of like every single one of your senses and to develop those over time and to like know what things to to look for and all that. So I think that, yeah, I think that there's like that, that's what makes it so special. So I don't feel like there's any way that you could like properly measure how good that is. But so this is a little bit of a, a departure, but sure. one thing that it just makes me think of is like, so Chef Jordan Kahn, are you familiar with yep, this guy? Yep, yep. So Vespertine, Meteora, for the, for the listener, he's a chef who was at Alinea for a while. He's yep. part of that, you know, just like OG, John Shields, Greg Backstrom, Curtis Duffy crew. And then he moved to LA, opened Vespertine. He had a a place called Red Medicine before that. And now he has a place called Meteora. And there's another breakfast spot called Destroyer in LA, if anybody wants to do some research on Jordan. Yeah. So, okay. So I haven't eaten at Vespertine, but I've eaten at Destroyer and Meteora. But so Meteora was like my favorite meal I had last year. Wow. It was awesome. And what I think is really cool about Jordan Khan is that like Vespertine is this like super conceptual, the idea is that like you're eating a meal on another planet in the future. And it definitely falls into that category of like molecular gastronomy. The food is crazy looking. There's a ton of manipulation that happens. And it's definitely like, you know, in the same lineage as Alinea or WD-50 or places like that, right? And what he did with Meteora was he went in the like completely opposite direction where the kind of like idea behind Meteora is that you're eating a meal that was prepared like a thousand years ago. So it's all, there's a heavy emphasis on like open fire and smoke and any kind of like primitive cooking technique. There's a lot of emphasis on like, using either like wild varietals of plants or heirloom varietals of plants. And I just think it's like, it's very interesting because one, it's it's just like really, it's really, really, really creative and really well executed. But it's also cool, cool to see a chef that spent so much of his time in that world of like, you know, the sort of like sciencey, very mani- like heavily manipulated food, go back to this and see like, oh, actually there's a ton of value to be had in this like completely opposite approach to cooking. I also, I mean, not to get too existential, but the place where my head goes sometimes in thinking about skill proficiency in a person who cooks is, you know, we can call that a chef just like to the nines is important because as I don't know if you spent any time thinking about automation in food, mm-hmm. yeah. but it's one of those funny things where it's like, okay, well, we have 
these ingredients that come in either pre-prepped or they're fairly straightforward to prep. We have these pieces of equipment that have dials on it that can be dialed in. And we have, you know, just kind of like these fairly repetitive motions that people can go through in a consistent manner to get the same product every single time. It's like that is a automator's like they're salivating looking at that and they're just like, oh, my God, I can build a robot that can do this. But when I look at open fire, when I look at like just genuine hospitality experiences, I'm trying to think about like, what are the human things? What are the things that benefit from human involvement? That's the thing that I just kind of like constantly come back to. And open fire cooking is certainly one of them. And so obviously it's got to be something that that like if you don't have experience in it, it's kind of like that is a potential moat you can build around yourself in your career. Definitely. Have you thought about that at all? I have, yeah, and it's like I mean, I, so I, because I don't f- cook professionally full time. I'm, you know, I'm a little bit more like you. Like I'll do pop ups and stuff here and there, but I'm, I'm more content focused at this point. So I haven't necessarily thought about it for me because I don't think there's other things I've thought about with regards to my career and how automation and AI m- might influence those. But I have thought about it generally, and I think that like. You know, one thesis that I have is that maybe it's just going to widen the gap between what we would call like fine dining and what we would call like fast casual. You know, it's like it seems to me like McDonald's, Sweet Green, Kava, like those types of places could you could see a future in which they're just fully automated without really like losing almost anything about the existing experience, right? And so maybe that means that like the 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 experiences that people are willing to pay more for are the ones that like have that strongly human element that just can't be automated away so like you know that a meteora falls in that line you know anything like francis malman would do falls into that but even like you know somewhere like noma or something somewhere that's doing like you know a new menu every season and there's like a lot of creativity and you know nuance behind what they're doing those places i think you know that's not going to get automated away I tend to agree. I have this theory that it's just like the the middle will get segmented. So yeah. like the people who are at your bistros and, and, and they just really enjoy being on the line, they're going to upskill so that they can be part of those concepts that are doing the things that are able to charge more because it's a supply and demand thing that's going to kick in. And then, like you said, the bottom is going to just be odd. That, that, that's where I tend to, to, to fall. Yeah. I, and not to, not to fanboy on Jordan Khan too much, but like sure, sure. one thing that I do like that he's doing is, I don't know if he said this himself or someone who was writing about it said it, but basically the idea is like he thinks that, you know, going out to eat should be like going to like the theater, like going right. to Broadway. You know, it should be an experience right. that you're like buying a ticket for in advance because it's this very interesting thing and you're talking about it afterwards with your friends and like, I went to Meteora with a buddy of mine who's also really into food and like we were talking about it for like a couple days, you know, just because it was super, super interesting. And I haven't been to Vespertine, but from what I understand about that experience, it's the same way. And so I think that you'll probably see more of those types of things where it's like not just fine dining, but fine dining that is wrapped in some kind of like experience and it'll be more akin to something like a theater or going to an art show or, or, or whatever it may be. And I actually think that that makes a lot of sense for the industry. Like I know that the Alinea guys who started Talk, they did that because they were saying like Alinea is this like very special meal and people would like make a reservation and not show up. And he's like, you know, you're not going to do that if you're going to a Broadway play. Like you're going to pay in advance. And if you have to sell your ticket to someone else, maybe you do that. But like the, the model was really broken for restaurants and the sort of like way that people were purchasing and scheduling that was out of line with the actual value that was being created there. So I think we're going to see more movement in that direction. 
I'm going to switch gears just really quickly to yeah. back to your Heartwood experience because I have a bunch of people who DM me or send me an email and, and, and ask about moving abroad. Yeah. And this question is often, you grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, is that right? Yep. I grew up in, in a little tiny town in Wisconsin, and it was this funny thing where I was like, I knew, I didn't know where I wanted to go, but I knew I wanted to get the hell out of Wisconsin. Yeah. And I think that the reason that becomes such a proliferated question is obviously because of the romantic, you know, I, I want to go cook in France, I want to go cook in Japan kind of thing. But it's this funny thing of like, if I break the seal of I'm going to leave my hometown, the world obviously it just opens up. Yeah. And so I guess I'm curious for you if you have any tips on someone who is interested in, in moving abroad. And, you know, you can you can talk about it from a, a wide variety of industries or you can keep it food focused if you want. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like if you're young and you have the means or even if you're not young and you just don't have, you know, the, the like a, a family or a mortgage or, you know, a dog or whatever might keep you there, like – 100% I can't recommend it enough. I mean, that was, that experience changed my life and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I think that it's such a powerful way to just sort of like expand your, your worldview generally. I think there's a, a huge arbitrage that's available to you. Like if you're, you know, if you're young and you're going to go cook, like you could get a job at a cool restaurant in New York City and you're going to be really, really struggling financially. Or you could, you know, go move abroad somewhere where the cost of living is like way, way, way lower and get a bunch of experience and have a lot more just abundance in your life. So I think that's definitely something to consider. But I also think that like, I think that if you're, if you're curious about other cuisines, like you just can't, you know, there's no way that you can cook those cuisines well without having like a lot of experience, both like eating and, and cooking them. And so, like, for me, it was, that was what I wanted to do with, with Mexico. I was always fascinated by that cuisine and, and wanted to learn more about it. And, like, you know, I spent two years there, like, living. I've spent a lot more time there, probably total. But, uh, yeah, that, that, like, hugely influenced the way that I cook now. And I think that, like, I, I, I personally sometimes think that, like, classic classical French training is a little bit overrated and I say that because like I didn't do it and I cooked with a bunch of people that did and I, it wasn't as important as I like initially thought it would be. I that, Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of value there. But I think that there's also that like the fact that we have classical French training or sorry, classical, you know, training and like French cuisine are, are have such a strong overlap misses the fact that there's like these really, really interesting fundamental techniques and learnings that happen from all these other cuisines, you know, like I wasn't classically trained, but I learned all sorts of stuff that are these like Mexican techniques that they don't teach in French training school. And so I think if you pick somewhere that has a cuisine that you think is really cool, there's a lot that you can learn that's not going to be the same stuff that you would learn if you went to, say, Culinary Institute of America or, or Johnson Wales or something like that. And I think there's a lot of value there. Is there a particular, if you're open to sharing it, a reason yeah. why you moved back to the U.S.? Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of, like I said, like I initially thought I was going to move back after cooking school, but I decided to, to stay and I wanted to go cook professionally. And so basically I said, I'm going to give myself a year to do that. Got it. So I did that. And then Hartwood closes every season. I see. For like kind of like the rainy season in Tulum. So when it closed, I actually went to Oaxaca and I staged at a couple places for like three months. And then I, and then I moved home. And the, the reason was just sort of like, I had kind of boxed it in my mind initially. And yeah, that's why. Can you correct me if I'm wrong on this stat, but you studied economics, right? Correct. 
Why economics? I thought it was a good major. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that that's that's a bit of a tee up here. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell a quick story, both for you and for the listener, and this is related to crypto and chefs. So to me, the combination is is a bit of a match made in heaven because chefs becoming more familiar with tech just mm-hmm. in general is a huge win. And the meme on Discord to swing it to the crypto communities is like touch grass. Like that, yeah, that's yeah. like a big thing. And so like to me, cooking is like one of the most in touch activities that you can do. I wrote a piece last year about how how chefs can take advantage of the big NFT and Web3 boom that happened because I have friends here in Seattle. They're founders of NFT projects. They blew up like crazy. Steve Aoki like put them on blast. And now yep. they're like, I have this group of 10,000 people and we need something to do. Like we need <laughs> we, we, yeah, we need yeah. something and, or or. The thing that that happened is like, oh, well, we promised in our list of perks that we were going to do dinners. And now we're like, oh, shit, we have people to do these dinners with. And like, we have no idea how to do dinners. And so for chefs, we were like perfectly positioned in a way that I saw us not being well positioned in Web 2. Because mm-hmm. Web 2 was like, oh, well, you need to learn how to use a camera. You need to learn how to set up a website. You need to learn how to code, blah, 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 blah. Whereas with Web 3, it's like you, us chefs can participate in crypto without necessarily like being the ones who are launching the project or deciding what the PFPs are or whatever. Yeah. Did you see the same thing when, when that was happening? Or I, I guess, can you talk a little bit about your involvement with crypto maybe? Yeah, I mean, I, my involvement with crypto is definitely more on the like Bitcoin side. I I mean, I, I've, I, I worked, I actually worked for a crypto hedge fund for several years. So I've like, sure. I've touched it all. But I think these days I'm, I'm much more just kind of like Bitcoin focused for, reasons that don't so much overlap with the, the king stuff that I do. So I think I agree with you generally. I, I don't know if I've seen anything yet that has been like super interesting to me on the side of like chefs leveraging that technology. But again, I'm not paying that close attention. So maybe I'm missing it. The only thing that I saw was like Tom Colicchio did yeah, and something. His, it was like a pizza thing that he did. Right? Yeah. And I, I think that like with that, it felt almost a little out of touch. Yeah, totally. It, to be clear, I'm not saying chefs launching crypto projects is the is the thing. It is just this funny thing of if anybody's ever done a pop up before, they know this issue or this obstacle that you run into, which is like, how am I going to get people to come? Yep. And with all of these Web3 communities, it's kind of like you have the opposite problem. It's like, well, we have a bunch of people here and we need to do something with them. We want it to be food. Food is like very high on our list. Yep. And to me, it's like chefs are so perfectly. And, and the other thing that's so interesting is you often have that problem come through with things like event planners yeah. or nonprofits where they're like, we have this big gala that we have to do and we have a bunch of people coming. Oh, and by the way, we have a shoestring budget. Can you please help? Yeah. Whereas with a lot of these other projects, they're just like, hey, we had like $2.3 million in like pre-sales that came through. We need something to do. And so can you please help us? You yeah. know what I mean? So to me, and that's like the perfect mix for chefs to come in and, and potentially benefit in a way that helps build their brand. Yeah. It helps get them a new audience. It helps them, you know, launch their project, like whatever it happens to be. That's more the angle I was talking yeah, about. Yeah. And on, on that, I 100% agree because I think that I would say to chefs like, don't do the stuff where someone is saying like, hey... You know, we we don't have a budget. We can't pay you, but um, there's going to be a bunch of like really cool people there who you should probably meet. Like, I've I've had that more times than I can count, and like, never has it been that productive for me. I think like if you're working as a chef, you should like get paid what you're worth because that's really really hard work that involves like a ton of hours of like prep and showing up and 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 execution and, and all this different stuff. And so I, what you're kind of saying is like there are opportunities now 
whether it's web three or just general, you know, if you can, can be a little bit more tech savvy where you can like find those opportunities that are going to pay you actually what you're worth versus requiring you to do this like shoestring budget type of thing. And I think like, absolutely. Yes. Seek those out. And that's why I think that it's like good for chefs to like, <laughs> like there's this like tech people who they're like, yo, go touch grass. And then there's these chefs who are like so rooted in the physical world. I think it would be good for a lot of them to have some foot in the, in the, Technosphere, Twitter, whatever, because I, I do think there are opportunities like that. Speaking of audience, you really focus on cooking at home now, and yeah. and I think that if I'm being honest, like I'm a little bit jealous. Like like <laughs> I, I think it's such a it's it's a to- larger total addressable market. I think that the skill set that you bring and the way that you talk about food on on like the the Twitter threads that you put out is so well done in a way that it appeals to that person who is interested in going deeper into into those waters. So I guess, can you talk a little bit about why you chose to go down this route and maybe some of the decision making, whether it's a mental model or, or, or yeah. some readings that you did that, that, that led you to, to positioning yourself in the way that you've done so far? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that I, so I grew up in a family where my mom, my mom is actually a trained chef. So, but she cooked for us at home all the time. And like home cooking was just a really big part of my like family life, our social life, all that. And so what was kind of funny was that when I started cooking professionally, I never cooked at home. Like I had one day off a week and I didn't want to cook. Right. I didn't even have like a proper kitchen in my apartment in Mexico. And, you know, there were certain things I loved about cooking professionally because it was like all day, every day I got to be working with my hands and working with food and all that. And that was beautiful. But I did miss that some of those elements of, of home cooking that I have really, you know, always loved. And so when I, when I came back from Mexico, I, I, I started working for a food company called Macienda. And at that point I was like working, you know, a regular job and started just cooking at home a ton more. And for me, it just like all of the things I love about cooking find their highest expression in home cooking. And that's just a personal thing, but it's like, I cook to, you know, eat healthier. I cook cause I like to save money. I cook cause I like to get friends and family together. I like to cook for other people. I like to kind of like be creative, but allow it to just, you know, be my own creativity that dictates that rather than having to execute on the the vision of of someone else. And I think it ties into kind of what you were saying earlier with the like touch grass thing, which is that I think that, you know, the, the vast majority of people today have some kind of like digital fatigue, probably professional chefs less so than others for obvious reasons and tech workers more so than others for obvious reasons. But I think that home cooking, and this is like maybe the, maybe the overarching thesis of everything that I do is that I think that home cooking provides this like antidote to the modern world that we live in, in a really, really powerful way. And that has a, there's a bunch of reasons why, but like the, the main reason is that we spend a lot of our time in this digital world in front of screens and cooking is a way to get rooted back into the physical world. You know, you have to use all of your senses to do it. You have to be present. It kind of connects you to nature because you're, you're working with these like natural products and all that. But I think one of the other things that a lot of people are feeling is this like lack of community in the modern world. And, you know, the like online interactions just aren't the same as these like in-person interactions. And food is not only like the oldest catalyst for this, but probably the best catalyst for like getting people together. And so I love when, um, you know, I've had friends who have like helped learn about home cooking and, you know, I've had friends who go from like not feeling like they could, you know, make scrambled eggs to then like hosting barbecues for five of their friends. And to me, that's like, 
that's the the journey. Like you've you've made it to the top at that point because I think that's ultimately what it's all about. So for me, it's it's like you know I I love talking to people like you because there's still part of me that is like such a nerd about food and jamming out about like chefs and cooking techniques and stuff that's on the cutting edge and all of that. So like I, I love that, but I also you know it's it's very satisfying for me to like work with people who you know, don't come from that background, but who can bring home cooking into their life and get some of these benefits from it. Well, listen, man, we just met, but I, I want you to gas gas up your projects a little bit. So, so can, <laughs> I guess, can you can you talk a little bit about how that actually manifests in, in the different platforms that you choose to publish on and then ultimately kind of like how you interact with people? Because I think it's also super unique compared to, I think, what we often saw in the kind of like late knots with like food blogs being yeah, kind of totally. like the thing that people drove forward. Yeah, and like this has been a like there was no master plan going into this. It's definitely been a journey of like discovery. And I started in terms of like online content. I was doing a lot of stuff on TikTok. And like that was fun, but it was also like a lot of work. The rewards were very like variable. And I definitely like burned out on it. I had been involved I I'd been on Twitter for my like tech work for several years and I was kind of interested in the fact that like Twitter was completely saturated with all these verticals like tech and productivity and business and money and all these things but there were these like glaring holes cooking being one of them like there there's to this day there's very few people doing cooking content on Twitter so I saw that as an opportunity one to just like stand out more because it wasn't as saturated Instagram TikTok they're completely saturated with cooking content it's very hard to to stand out it's very hard to build a following the other thing was that in my experience with Twitter, it it was a more social social network. So with TikTok, it's like I might be mutual friends with someone, but very rarely are you do you feel like you're having a conversation with them. And even like people aren't really DMing each other on TikTok in, in the same way. I've never been super big on Instagram, so I, I don't really know what the deal is there. But like with Twitter, it felt like I was actually building relationships with people. And it's very common to like DM with people or even, you know, you meet someone, you're like, hey, let's hop on a phone call. Like, we, you know, and I've, ha I've had a ton of that. And then the other thing was that I noticed that people from Twitter were like way more likely to kind of look into my other work beyond what was happening on that platform. So on TikTok, I would post a link to my newsletter and no one would <laughs> jump through to it. Whereas like on Twitter, whether it's like a newsletter or a product or some other thing I'm doing, like it just that people are much more willing to engage. And I don't know exactly why that is. I've thought about it a lot, but there's like something to be said for these different platforms. And like I can tell you absolutely that my follower count on TikTok was like maybe like five times what it is on, on Twitter. And the value that I get out of the Twitter following that's much smaller is so, so, so much higher. So once I kind of discovered that and started getting like feedback that that was actually working, I decided to focus almost entirely as on Twitter as kind of my main platform so along with my newsletter. Can you talk a little bit too about, I, I you know, like again, we just met, but I, I, I would credit a large percentage of the reason why that this is working so well is because you live in Austin, right? Mm -hmm. And so from a, you know, kind of like user behavior perspective, it's not like you have to teach people to go to your website or, or there was this company. Oh my God, I can't remember the name of it, but it was like, Oh, well, we're going to, we're going to launch these like food focused communities in, in an app. Like it's a separate Oh, app. it was called, uh, it was from was... some of the resi people. 
Do you know yeah, what I'm I want to say miso, but it wasn't that. But it was like it was like these group chats, right? Something like that. It was like very Patreon meets WhatsApp group meets, yeah. you know, something to that effect. I tried it out, and it sure. didn't, it didn't stick for me. Sure, sure. And I, I I I would say that like if you're trying to get people in Austin to get more interested in food, it's like meet them where they're at. You know what mm. I mean? Like it, it's it's the same with like my my family's from northern India and so it's mm. like if I was to launch a brand there I would go on WhatsApp do you know what I mean like there, totally. there's very different you know what yes. I mean like user yeah, behavior yeah. just kind of and I think chefs can often overthink that where it's like oh well the last generation before me did the food blog thing or built a Facebook page or whatever and you're just like I, I, I'm trying to call that out for the audience here of you know listen to what's working and just continue to pour gasoline on that yeah and like I, I mean I've thought about this with regards to Twitter like something I found out recently was that like Twitter, I think, has like 300 million users versus right. like TikTok and Facebook, which have billions. And so Twitter is actually a much smaller network. And I think it also probably skews like like the, the demographics are, are pretty unique probably for Twitter. And so there's probably benefits and downsides to that. But definitely, I think just the fact that there's very few other people doing this type of content on there makes a big difference. If you wouldn't mind, I'd be curious, like creator to creator, how yeah. are you thinking about brand relationships, monetization, creating yeah. your own products, having an own audience? You mentioned you have a newsletter versus platform audience. Like mm -hmm. there's all these things to think about. So I guess are there like pillars of, you know, things that you just kind of like to keep in mind that you're just kind of driving forward that you use as like bumpers when you're making decisions or I guess yeah. how, how are you approaching Yeah, for sure. Growth? I mean, I think that owned audience is super, super, super important. And I've known that for a long time. So but it's almost like to build an owned audience, you have to leverage some other platform to get the distribution. But what's interesting is like my initial thought was, okay, TikTok for the distribution, newsletter for the owned audience, sure. but no one converted. Uh -huh. And so I think these are the things you have to think about. Whereas like with Twitter, like the conversions are like crazy, crazy high. And so I think for me, I think a lot about, yeah, having both and trying to build both. And like with Twitter, I, I was able to do that with other platforms. I wasn't. And so, you know, like I'm going to keep pushing on Twitter because it seems to be working right now. But I think probably the most valuable asset I own is my email list for sure. As far as like monetization goes, this is like an ever changing thing. Yep. And like I'm still absolutely trying to figure it out. I think that so I have done some work with brands like, you know, on when I was doing TikTok, I, I would have a fair amount of brands reach out. And that's tough because, you know, you don't always want to work with all the brands that reach out to you, you know? And so like I turned down like a really, really lucrative deal with a brand that it was very hard to say no to, but I don't use this brand. Like I don't eat this brand's food. I don't like, it's, it's not in line with my values. And I kind of knew that if I did do that deal, it would just like look very odd because I'm here like talking about shopping at farmer's markets and eating healthy food. And then you see this, you know, I'm not going to name them, but this brand sure. pop up that sure. you can imagine the type of brand that it is. The um, lesson's important, you know, like making sure that you're, you're not feeling like you're wearing, you know, a, a, a set of clothes that aren't yours is, yeah. is really, really valuable. Yeah, for sure. And I think that the other thing about the brand deals is that they're just very inconsistent. Like it would, I, you know, I think that maybe if you have like management or you're at a certain level where, you know, th that you just have the ability to do that. But like, for me, it seemed like it would be really hard to like earn a consistent living just doing that. And there would be a lot of uncertainty in your future and it would be really tough. 
So I didn't really like that model. I'm not against it, but I've found for me that the model that I like a lot better, even though I'm not making nearly as much money off of this as I could with just direct brand deals is affiliates. Nice. So basically I went to every like major brand, like cookware, olive oil, tallow, you know, pantry stuff, kitchen stuff, all that stuff. And the brands that I love, I went to them and they all have affiliate programs, you know? So I was basically able to get affiliates for, for all the brands that I, that I actually use. Um, then I'm part of like Amazon's affiliate program and all that. And so, you know, whenever I recommend a product, whether it's in my newsletter or on Twitter or whatever, I link to the affiliate link and, you know, that generates some, some good revenue. It's not like, you know, it's, it's side hustle money for sure, but it's growing. And I, I think that could be like something substantial moving forward. But I definitely think for me, the longer term goal is to find like to experiment with different models that I think are better than just the the simple like brand deals. And I don't know exactly what those are, but I'm kind of like trying different things. So like I want to do some like live online classes, sell tickets to that. I just started doing this thing called culinary coaching where I'm kind of like working one-on-one -on -one with people. Talk um, on that. Yeah. Talk on that. Cause I saw you post that. That was actually one of the reasons that like prompted me to reach out to you on Twitter. Cause I, oh, cool. it's funny cause I do coaching too, but it's like with line cooks, with sous chefs, with business owners. Yeah. Cause it's like, I just genuinely think that like, the stat is something, something to the effect of like only th if you look at a restaurant, only 35% of the people in that restaurant have any sort of like structured degree style training. Uh -huh. And so from, for the most part, everybody's just kind of like figuring it out as they go. And what really sucked for me being in restaurants sometimes is like, it's not that I feel like, felt like information was being gate kept, but I feel like it was like so hard fought. And so I was like, well, I learned a lot of this stuff. And it was like, if I made this available, like this could be another way that I can monetize without, with, with being able to say no to some of these brand deals that were presenting themselves that I wasn't excited about. So go ahead, talk about. Well, this yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, yeah, for, I mean, it's a, it's a similar thing where it's like, just for me, apply it to home cooks. I think that, you know, you can look across a lot of different industries where people want to develop a skill and, you know, you can call them coaches, you can call them consultants, whatever you want, but there's like people who individuals can work with who can help them develop those skills. You see it a lot in the fitness world. You see it a lot in the world of like nutrition. You see it a lot of, in like professional consulting in various capacities. But the way I saw it is I was like, cooking is a really useful skill that people can develop. I know a lot about this. I've worked with people to um, develop these. I, I can get results. So why not create an offering out of that? And I, you know, the, when I, when I kind of thought of it and conceptualized, it, I was like, it's kind of funny that this, this doesn't really exist, you know, like. But I think it makes sense. It's like, think about it like a like a fitness coach, but, f but for your home cooking practice. So I just launched that. I limited it to three clients to start with. I have those locked in and we're about to start working together. Tight. And I'm going to test that and kind of see how it goes and then decide like, you know, if I like it, if they like it, if they're getting value out of it. And if so, maybe figure out a way to like scale it a little bit and kind of like figure out how many clients can I realistically take on. And so, yeah, I'm really excited about that. I think it's going to be, cool. I think where I see that going eventually is maybe creating some kind of like course offering that, that helps people right. develop these skills. And yeah. I think that's a way to kind of like scale it because there is obviously a limit, um, you know, on one-on-one -on -one coaching, not just in terms of like, you can always raise your, your prices and, and there's not necessarily a limit on how much you can make doing that, but there's definitely a limit in the scale you can reach doing that. So 
that's kind of what I'm thinking about right now, but don't necessarily know exactly what it's going to look like. I mean, let's let's you know play the chess game out a little bit further. If if all of these monetizations were to I don't know, you can pick a number. Maybe it's like five x or ten x from here. Yeah. With expanded resource capacity, I've heard you talk on other shows about potentially like opening up a space that's like teaching center, kitchen, event space, co working vibes. Like, is that still something? Because like I've played around in my head with that too. Like, I want something to that effect. Totally. Where it's like it doesn't feel the pressure. I always tell people when I pitch this idea, it's like, I don't want to have to think about what my Wednesday night happy hour menu is. Like I want to have exactly. other monetization. Do you know what I mean? Like things yes. built into it where it's like digital monetization is happening. Product recommendation is happening. You know, like in-person workshoppy kind of things are happening. Content production is, is happening. Like there's, there's something there. And so I guess what, have you spent more time thinking about that or I just kind of like, where's your I mean, head at? What you content? just described is exactly yeah. how I'm yes. thinking about it. Yes. I think that the, I've I've definitely put that off in my mind until the time is absolutely right. Because right. like you were saying, what I don't want to do is do that too early and then be locked into something that forces me to do things that I don't want to do in order to like pay for it or justify totally. the cost or recoup the cost, whatever. Yep. So like once I am in a place of enough abundance with everything else is happening, like that very much is a goal of mine. And I've thought about it a ton. I've like visualized it. I've conceptualized like what it could look like, all these different things. I love that idea. And it's like a big major bucket list item, but I'm very wary of doing it too soon because I know that that can come with, with consequences. The more that I think about it, the more that I just kind of grapple with this idea of like bootstrapping is so sexy sounding. You know what I mean? Like this idea of, oh, well, I have built this brand up. Have you seen like what Babish is doing with like building a bed and breakfast? Oh, no, I didn't know that. I didn't know he was doing like a posted the architecture plans. It's like it's called I I don't know. It's something Babish in the name. Yeah. yeah. But he's like basically did this model like Josh Weissman talks about like, oh, I'm going to have a restaurant. It's going to be the craziest thing you guys have ever seen before. And there's no world where he doesn't produce content out of that restaurant. And so it's this kind of funny thing where it's like, well, if I can get people like you to like nod their head about it and you've it's this like independent discovery thing where it's yeah. like, you know, two people who never met each other land on the same idea together. It's like, well, is that something that I should like use profits from the business to fund? Yeah. Or is it this world where it's like, well, we can see so much upside to this that it's like I should just raise money and do it. I mean, like, do, do you ever think about that? Well, okay, yeah, I, I think about it in a lot of different ways. I mean, for like, if you look at both Babish and Weissman, like, those are two guys who are like crushing it in the content world. You know, the like cash the, flow is there. Like, the every cash month. flow is there. Yeah. Like, they yeah. could they totally. could start one of these things, not have it ever be profitable, and, and sure. probably be okay. I think that like when you talk about going out and raising money for something like this, it's it you know, unless you've proven out like, hey, I can generate enough money from my content that that, that is the business model, I think it will be hard to raise money for. But I, yeah, I mean, it, when you said like, Babbitt, I didn't know that Babbage was doing something like that and I didn't know that Wiseman had kind of I'll send it to you. On, I'll send it to you after we get off here. Yeah, please do. Well, what I was going to ask you is like, can you think of anyone who's like definitely doing that model where it's not like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this, but like someone who's like actually executing on that? As um, in the... My content makes money and my physical space potentially does not. Chef Steps, maybe? Chef Steps, potentially. They got acquired by Breville. Okay. And what they kind of figured out was the real asset that is Chef Steps is in the educational kind of tutorial-y videos for yep. their physical appliance products. Got it. And okay. so if you go on Jewel and you're doing a steak thing, it's like you get walked through this 60 frames per second beautiful thing of like mm-hmm. the bag dropping into the water bath or whatever. That, hap- that production happens at Chef Steps. 
Yeah. And so they have a bunch of writers. They have just they have a kind of like a privatized community thing too, where I think it's like sixty bucks a year, and mm-hmm. you get access to a bunch of different recipes and video tutorials, and they do live streams with the chefs there and whatever. That's the real asset that Chef Steps you know manage, and and they did the whole content thing. I think they grew to like three hundred thousand YouTube subscribers, and and whatever. The closest one that I can point to is like certain gyms do this really well. Yeah. Where it's like the owner of the gym happens to have enough content out there where they do this combination of selling products and getting AdSense revenue where it's like the gym ultimately ends up getting elevated to this point that's like really, really productive. Yeah. And so I do think that it has to have some sort of like multifaceted monetization strategy where it's like Mm. not everything hinges on is Babish going to make a video this week? And if it doesn't, we're really going to feel like, oh shit, like the business took a massive hit this week or something to that effect. Yeah. And so- you know, like that's why I started this company. It's called Repertoire. It's about education because it's like I have this idea that if I can do a good enough job of like making educational products, that that can fund some sort of space. Like that's you know just being transparent. That's my plan, just yeah, to kind of drive things forward. And but yeah, to to the point of have I seen it? Not in food. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's a there's a big like. I think there were certain there are stories of like certain times in Chef Steps' history where like they were really struggling, you know, and and this thing with Breville just ultimately helped, I, yeah. I would say. But yeah, man, I don't know. Have you have you seen anything? No, I, I've been kind of like racking my brain to think about it, but I can't think of of anything specifically. You know who does a really good job of this that I can imagine it helps his businesses a lot is Cedric Grolet, the pastry oh, guy. Oh yeah, well. He was big way even before social media. Like he he? had his books and he had all his pastry shops and whatever. But like, man, that guy puts out a video and it's like instant banger. Totally. Uh, I mean, yeah, his videos are great. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't know. So I know him just kind of through seeing him on social media, but he has pastry shops. Yeah. In Paris. It's yeah. Like I remember when I was in culinary school, this was 13 years ago. Uh I'm almost positive. And maybe it wasn't in culinary school, but it was shortly after school. My best friend he had a bunch of Cedric's books and I was just like, Oh, this is interesting that like you like this guy out of Paris. Cause you know, my, this friend of mine like adored Paris just like as a food city. And so yeah. he just like got all this stuff from there. But yeah, man, I, th- I, th- I think it's that funny thing where it's like, you don't want the content to be the, the thing, the thing, but then at the same time, it's like, cause then you, you run into that touch grass problem. To be the thing, exactly, the thing. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. And so it's, 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 it's kind of like you're, you're silly if you do one or the other to me. Because if yeah. you're all digital, you you have that touch grass problem. If you're all physical, it's just kind of like this thing where you struggle to grow. Your customer acquisition cost is super high. Like there's all these issues that you run into. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one thing we are seeing more of that it's not like what you and I are talking about doing, but I think as a trend we'll see we'll see further is like there's say you know some like mom and pop shop in Cleveland and they're like really big on TikTok. Right. And they, you know, the ones who can do content well almost make these like little mini reality shows about their businesses. And I think that ends up being like their big driver of of marketing. And I think people are starting to recognize that and see that. And and the ones that do it well, I think will will benefit a lot from that because they can build a brand and they can sell merch and they can you know, they can do other events and and all that. And so like we're we're seeing some of that already, but I think that's going to continue to grow. And I think people who. Some people are going to start to realize that that's not just like a fluke. They're going to be like, oh, that's a strategy. Yeah. And it's like we want to build this in from the jump versus having it be like an afterthought where it's totally. like, oh, well, you know, now now that we're launched, now that we have the website down, how do we want to think about content? It's not yep. going to be like that. Yeah. I want to switch gears and talk about health 
yeah. you you mentioned you know one of the the benefits that you experience from cooking at home is that you feel healthier and it's you, you get nutrition incorporated a little bit easier because you and I have both lived that chef de partie life I've heard yeah. you talk about your you know thoughts on the trend of the quantified self I'm wearing an aura ring as we record <laughs> this and and for context I I've never really struggled with like my weight or I've never had like an addiction to like substances or anything like that so in a way I don't have that much to like really complain about but I do care about health because my passion is kind of seeing the number of excited hospitality professionals go up yeah. and a big reason that people push back to coming into the hospitality industry is because of the lifestyle. Yeah. And so you can kind of feel free to approach this from, from any way you want, but what are some health principles that maybe like the working line cook can keep in mind? Yeah. I mean, I think that there was a long time and this probably still is the case in certain restaurants where it's like the norm was this like hard charging partying lifestyle. And it's like, yeah, you work on your feet 14 hours a day, but after your shift, you drink a bunch and then you go out and then you wake and you know you hear you still hear chefs like tell stories about the glory days and this and that and when they when they did a lot of this and it's like you know everyone's free to do what they want and if that's the the lifestyle that you choose more power to you but i think that if you want like longevity and you want to like feel your best then you you just you just can't do that it's going to catch up to you eventually i think that i mean you probably know better than i do but like this is changing a little bit, is it not? Yep, yep, 100%. I, I talk about this idea of, like, I I don't have any tattoos. Like mm -hmm. I said, I've never struggled with any sort of substance abuse problems. I love, like, putting together, like, documents and nerding out about communication and being organized and, like, you know, there's, there's something to me, made, like, potentially made fun of there of, like, oh, well, like, you're just a golden boy, whatever, whatever. But, yeah. like, <laughs> I genuinely don't think that the pirate life just kind of ever resonated with me. Yes. I've never followed true cooks on Instagram kind of thing. Like it's never been something <laughs> that spoke to me, man. And so I look at these things of like, oh, well, if you're a chef, if you're a line cook, like this is who you are. And I'm, I just don't, I, I, I no, it, it, it doesn't do it for me. And so part of, I had this conversation with my production assistant a couple weeks ago. I was like, we kind of need to think about the branding that we do at repertoire is almost being like anti-true cooks in a way Dude. where it's like it needs to speak to someone who is not all about that life i'm just uh, laughing so hard at the true cooks <laughs> thing because i know exactly what you're talking about that's like a pretty niche reference but like yes that sort of brand image because i agree with you and i think what it does is it's like there's so many people of the older generation who went into cooking professionally not because they like loved food or thought it was a really interesting challenge or thought there was a you know good way to make an impact or were like intellectually interested in it, whatever. They went in because it was like they didn't fit in anywhere else in society. And it sure. was like you said, this like pirate thing and like outcasts and rebels and all that. And like not that that's bad, but I think that there's like I, I want more room for people to, to enter this industry because they love cooking and they love food or like like you almost were saying that it should attract really really smart people who see like really interesting challenges here and there should be as much room for you know like some guy who graduated from Yale and is interested in like the logistics of this business and I do think that some of the like yeah branding around it turns it off what's kind of funny is like like you can look through history and see like certain chefs who just didn't fit that mold and kind of like carved their own lane like some of these like quieter nerdy more like intellectual you know i even think of like someone like wiley dufresne who was just kind of like a weird cool super creative dude and it's like i want more of those types of people to exist like i think that's a 
Yeah, I think it's a good. Yeah, and and I I hope it's not coming through like I I bash True Cooks in any sort of way where it's like I I don't think that because like if it speaks to you if it, if it helps you be a better professional that's great. Yeah, I just find that if you just kind of like. <laughs> If you crack open a floorboard just a little bit, there's, like, so many fucking problems underneath the stuff that gets talked about on pages like that or, like, yeah. glamorizing that kind of lifestyle where it's, like, your relationships suck and you're in a bunch of dead and you're just, like, like there's so yeah. many issues that, that come with that. And it's, like, to put that on the pedestal of, like, this is what we're proud to be is just it, – it doesn't, it doesn't do what I want the, the industry to do. And, and ultimately it makes it harder for people. Like, it's like, you guys know that it's like a two steps backwards, one step forward kind of thing. I, and I and that's why, more. that's why, that's why I go on these rants about, about that yeah. rant. And I think it's kind of telling that the, a lot of the sort of like people who that brand, I don't want to single them out specifically, but like that brand's image, the type of people they idolize who are now in the later stages of their career are turning around and saying like, I have regrets. I wish I had done things differently. Like this isn't sustainable, this and that. So it's like, what are you idolizing? Because even the people who, who have, you know, gone through that, I think are now realizing it's not the right way. I mean, you I even look at someone like Sean Brock, right? right Who's just like right. kind of embodied that in a lot of ways. And now it's like, are the guys he, from Joe beef. They did the same thing. They like, made oh, that really? huge decor. Yeah. He made this huge declaration. He was like, I was in like a hellhole of health and I just like went completely sober because I was just like, I could not continue to do this anymore. I think he went on Rogan and talked about it. That's um, interesting. I gotta, I gotta check yeah. that out. I took us on a, on that true cooks tangent back to, <laughs> to health principles. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about like what you would, you know, like if, if someone's just starting off, they're just like, you know, hey, I'm 19. I am just thinking about going to culinary school or I just got my first, you know, dishwasher job. I'm just kind of curious if there are any things that might stand out as like even low hanging fruit to, to people. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'll say it, like I'm I'm definitely not a like health. Yeah. Guru. Yeah. Like, you know, disclaimer. Yeah. Health medical disclaimer. Um, doctor disclaimer inserted. Yeah. And even I just think it's such a personalized thing that you kind of have to right. like find right. what works for you. But I, I, I honestly think the the biggest thing that I can speak to that's like industry specific is that you don't have to fall into that trap of that like hardcore lifestyle. You know, like I just think, you know, when you are working on your feet and physically all day, every day, like you, you really need to like rest and recover well in order to, in order to do that job well. And you're just not going to do that if you're drinking all the time and getting like really poor sleep and all that. So I think like prioritizing those things, it's like in some way, like high level athletes would never do that to their bodies. Right. But like you're not an athlete, but you're someone who uses your physical body every day to do your job well. So I think if you think about it a little bit more like that, then you you're going to take care of your body accordingly. You. You have this funny thing that you talk about with, and it's not even funny. I, I completely agree with it. I, I just think it doesn't get talked about enough. And, and to the home cook, it's like a complete mind blown moment. But you had had this overrated, underrated list that you published, and one of them was <laughs> overrated as recipes and underrated yeah. as techniques. Can yes. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think the simplest way to put it is that when you when you learn an individual recipe, you learn how to make one dish. When you learn a technique, you learn how to make a thousand dishes. I think if there's a lot of chefs listening to this, I'm sure they agree with me. I think this 100%. actually, I think about this more in the context of home cooks, which is that so many people that I know, they're very married to recipes. And I think recipes are, are great. They're a good way to share knowledge and they're a good way to get inspiration. But like, you don't need to follow every recipe to a T. If it says 
a half teaspoon of salt, like that's not a real measurement. These people, you know, the person who developed the recipe is using different ingredients from a different part of the world, from a different time of year, you know, from, from different farms. Like these, these are living things that, that vary a lot. And so I think when you stick too much to recipes, you put yourself in a box and you get away from what we talked about way earlier, which was like cooking with, with intuition. So what I like about techniques is that they're kind of these like high level frameworks that can guide you in your cooking that are going to ultimately allow you to cook a bunch of different things. And it's like, if you want to cook one, you know, say that you want to like learn how to make, you know, cochinita pibil or something. It's like, yeah, go find a recipe or find a couple recipes and compare them and, and you know, see what they have in common. So if you're look, cooking a specific dish, great. But like, if your goal is to be able to cook a lot and take what's in your kitchen and make something really delicious and tasty out of it or go to the farmer's market and buy something and then cook it even though you haven't necessarily cooked that before i think you'll get a lot more value out of learning techniques or focusing on learning techniques i'm i know you gave a little bit of an industry call out there to you know like oh well chefs chefs might know this or working professionals might know this but it's like i i want to spend a second on that because it's like you might not like if you're working super early on in your career and you're just like yeah. getting delegated recipes it's like you might not actually comprehend the fact that like you do have the technique available now in your toolkit of like how to make an emulsion totally. or like how to roast or kind of like thinking about the Maillard reaction or like all of these sorts of underlying principles that I think we're talking about here that that, you know, if you just pay attention to kind of like, oh, well, I have this recipe book and it just has a bunch of like notes in it and scaled out ingredients that I have. And it's just it, it, it can often get lost on people that they do actually have a bunch of techniques that they can use. It's just so siloed to like this recipe that I do every single week. Yeah. And it's like, just, just take a step back and be like, okay, yeah, it's, I'm following this recipe, but like, what is the technique that is a part of this recipe? And think about like, you know, what am I trying to accomplish with this recipe and how does that technique accomplish that? And then you'll immediately see how it's applicable to a bunch of other dishes. You can also see this sometimes when people do a little bit too much recipe I'll call it like hoarding. You know uh -huh. what I mean? Like they, I have, the, I have all these recipes documented or like I've spent all this time, like transcribing recipes from cookbooks into my notebooks. And it's like, okay, like does that information benefit you further than just like having this little thing that you can spout off? If I were to ask you for like a tarragon fluid gel or totally. You know you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have this question in, in line with technique. I, you can frame it from like a, a skill that's been really hard fought to acquire for yourself. This can maybe be in relation to business or content or, or, or cooking. I, I always like to ask people, what's the most valuable part of your repertoire? Ooh, that's a, that's a really good question. You know, I don't know if I can say one thing definitively, but something that comes to mind was that in college, I learned to speak Spanish and that opened up so many doors for me. I mean, the the cooking school that I went to in Mexico was all in Spanish. That wouldn't have been possible without it. I don't think I would have moved to Mexico without it. Like the, I wouldn't have been able to, I probably wouldn't have gotten the job at Heartwood, although maybe, but like I wouldn't have been able to do the staging that I did. And it's like that one skill opened up so much for me that I think like, you know, it also allowed me to get a set of experiences that a lot of people who were similar to me in terms of like background and, and other things wouldn't have been able to do. Um, and so I don't think it, it has to be Spanish, but like if you're a young chef and you're really interested in learning a lot about another cuisine and you're thinking about going abroad, like we talked about earlier, like do whatever you can to learn the language because it'll open up a ton of doors and you'll be able to integrate that much deeper into the culture and you'll learn a ton from that experience. 
well, pardon the pun, but you see this with, this translates to other languages too, right? Like you see people who say they want to go to France. They want to cook in France. It's like, I would count that as a pretty valuable prerequisite. Or or you hear about sometimes, oh, well, I tried to apply to this place in Tokyo to stage. And it's like they were only taking people who spoke Japanese. It's like, okay, well, you know, think about that a little bit. 100%. You're probably the 10th guest that I think I've asked that what's the most valuable part of your repertoire question to. And I think I want to start to rephrase it a little bit to saying you can pick up to three things because okay. I think that it, you, you have this funny thing where you just like get to this point and you're like, oh, I can't just pick one. So I, you're, you're going to be the first person I ask, do you have anything else that stands out or just kind of like skills that have helped you along the way? I, I think the the intuitive cooking from spending so much time on open fire is another one. Like I think that that just – allowed me to feel comfortable in almost any kitchen situation. I think live fire is like the most unpredictable kind of like chaotic, you know, type of, of heat that you can cook with. And so once you feel comfortable with that, you feel comfortable in basically any environment. So that I think would, would, would be the number two. And then I think the third thing would be the, the fact that I'm like very deep in the cooking world, but also pretty deep in the tech world. And this touches on some of the stuff that we talked about you're very much the same way, but I think that you see a lot of people who are one or the other. And I think especially for people who are interested in cooking, for chefs and all that, there's so, so, so much value to be had. Like there's there's pitfalls to the digital age too. We, we touched on some of those, but it's also like, it's there's so, so, so much opportunity that's enabled by the internet. It's crazy. It blows my mind every day. There's I went to this lunch recently with a, a bunch of people who are doing kind of like digital stuff. And someone said, there's two types of people in the world. People who don't understand the scale of the internet and people who know that they don't understand the scale of the internet. Got and it. I think it's very true. Like it, I, my mind is blown sometimes at like just the, the reach that you can get through these things and the opportunities that become available to you when you're tapped in. So I think that, yeah, when, when you have that crossover, it, it, it becomes really powerful. So back up really quickly to the, the intuitive cooking piece. I yep. don't know if you talk about this one-on-one with, with coaching clients of yours, but is, is if someone's listening to this and they're like, yeah, Miles, got you. I, I want to get better at that intuitive cooking thing. Is there some sort of exercise? Just go work at a restaurant might be the piece of advice or, or you know, like any yeah. sort of if I have just like a, you know, half domed Weber grill or green egg in the in my backyard that like I want to I want to improve on. Are there sort of like exercises or cook this dish kind of kind of thing that you, you might advise them to do to improve that that skill? Yeah, I mean, I don't even like I don't think you have to go straight to charcoal. Like I would almost say like cook eggs every day and try like 10 different ways of cooking eggs. Right. Like try a crispy fried egg, try a soft scramble, soft boil, hard boiled, poached. Like the, I love eggs because they provide like endless ways to learn about these different like cooking methods and techniques. And like if you do that and you cook you cook eggs 10 different ways and you do that a few times each, like you will learn so, so, so much about different cooking mediums and heat control and how the, like how protein and fat and heat all interact. Like there's so much that you could learn by just cooking eggs. And so many people, myself included, eat eggs almost every day for breakfast. So there's like a lot of opportunity to do that in a way that I think is very approachable for people. And on the getting more familiar with the tech side of things, like if someone's listening, they're like, yeah, guys, you're right. Like, 
I just I, I I'm in my chef's office and I have cookbooks and like I have I don't follow anybody on social media I don't yeah. follow any substacks I'm not, I'm not anywhere where have there been any places that have been like oh well someone should start here to just potentially get a little bit more kind of like versed in in the tech side of things this is my personal opinion but I am impartial to Twitter for some of the reasons that I mentioned earlier like I said I think there I think it's an inherently social social network so it's like if you're one of those people reach out to me, reach out to Justin on Twitter, look at who we follow and you can, you know, kind of start to get a sense of like the, the community that's on there. But it's like, I like Twitter cause it's the type of place where it's very normal to just like DM someone and you feel like you can get that like, you know, interaction and by, yeah, just popping in there, you know, checking out who we follow. You'll see that there's, you know, there's a, a small but growing community of like food focused people on there. And I think it's still early enough that you can kind of like pop into the conversation and, and get noticed and get on people's radar and participate in those conversations. I mean, you talked you talked about eggs. I have this question that I ask all my guests, which is, yep. you know, it's a Saturday morning. You're just kind of coming into your kitchen after a long work week and, and you're going to make eggs for yourself. How do you prepare those eggs? I am obsessed with this technique that I learned from Frank Prisanzano on his Instagram, which is this like crispy fried egg. So Got it. basically it's like hot pan, a lot more olive oil than you think you need. And it produces, and then you fry the eggs in that. And it's like, you get this really crisp bottom. The whites are cooked completely. The yolks are like just set. And it's like the perfect combination of textures that with like some shaved pecorino cheese and some either like chili flakes or hot sauce or something like that. Like nice. One of my favorites. I love it. What's one thing that you've changed your mind on in recent memory? I got to think about this one. Yeah, that's good. It's fine. This isn't super recent memory, but I definitely went through a period of time where I was much more heavily focused on like plant-based cooking. I kind of like, I ate a lot more like pescatarian leaning than I, than I do now. You know, since moving to Texas, becoming friends with a bunch of people who are involved in like regenerative farming, I've realized that there are ways to do animal agriculture that I think are like highly ethical, really good for the environment and are things that we like should support. And I actually think that you can make a bigger impact by like economically supporting those farms and companies than avoiding it altogether. I love it. Us as content creators are often pigeonholed is the wrong word, but I think we're incentivized to continue to share what people know us as. Yeah. I'm curious if there's something that doesn't end up on your Twitter or your Instagram, as in you don't share it that widely, but you really get excited about it. Oh, yeah. I'm very, very interested in mind-body medicine. So I went through a period of time where I struggled with really bad like gastrointestinal issues. Yeah. And then later on, I had like a period of really bad chronic pain. Like mine was mostly like neck pain, but there's people who, you know, back, shoulder, whatever. I think it's also pretty common for cooks. And I discovered the work of this guy named Dr. John Sarno, who is a really, really, really interesting guy, you know, Western medical doctor, worked at NYU, but he was a, he was working with a lot of people with, with chronic back pain who were being treated in the sort of like traditional ways and weren't getting better. And he developed a theory that started with him kind of diagnosing back pain. He later expanded it to include not just all forms of chronic pain, but a lot of like just everything from like IBS to even certain like anxiety disorders. And it really, it's what he calls like a mind body type of thing. So it's not saying that it's all in your head, 
but it's saying that the the mind and the body are one and you, know, you can't disconnect them and that the approaches that view it too much as just this like physical object that needs to be manipulative are missing a lot of things. And I received like tremendous benefit from learning about his work and some of the people, the other people in that field. And I'm just like so grateful for discovering that knowledge. It absolutely changed my life. And I think anybody who's struggling with those kinds of things should check out his work first and foremost, and then kind of see where the rabbit hole leads them from there. But I think that, yeah, if I like, it's, it's definitely something I'm very passionate about. I've gotten a, a ton of benefit from, and you know, I think that like, it doesn't have, you know, I'm, I'm, I have certain elements of my personality that are kind of like woo woo, but it doesn't have to be woo woo at all. Like there's a very kind of like rigorous methodology here that applies. No, you're, my mom was like, when I was growing up, my mom was like, my mom was a pediatrician. So she was in Western medicine and then uh -huh. she like became a Reiki healer when I was a teenager. Oh, so no way. Like, yeah. So it's totally like you're, I get it. Like I totally mm -hmm. get it. I mean, I guess, how does that take, take place in, in your life? Like, how does that, is that a practice through how, like, how do, how do you, how do you continue to live those principles throughout your day? Yeah. I mean, luckily it's not as big of a part of my life anymore because it's managed to like heal a lot of my issues, but I think when things come up, I'm very like, I, I have that tool in my toolkit and those things don't turn into like chronic problems anymore. Sure. Yeah, that's great. We'll link that in the show notes for anybody who wants to do a deep dive there. Yeah. I even have this thing where I tell people like, if you, if you promise me you'll read the book, I'll buy the book for you. Got like, it. I don't have to know you just DM me. I, I, I like, I literally it. will. I've done that for a bunch of people because I think it's that powerful. I want to yeah, share it. That's great. I mean, that kind of leads us into our next question. I'll make the rule that you can't name this book, but the the question is what book has been particularly impactful for you in your career? Okay. Yeah, I guess on this end, I'll focus on the cooking side of things. Sure, but sure. when I, so one of the first restaurants that I went to that like really made me want to be a chef was the original Mission Chinese Food in nice. San Francisco. Yep, yep. And then when I started at Hartwood, I got a copy of the Mission Chinese Food cookbook that had just come out. I think Danny Bowen is just awesome. I think he is like a flavor wizard. His approach to cooking is like, I'd say the two chefs that have been most influential to me are like Travis Lett from Jelena and Justa in LA because of this like maniacal focus on food quality and sourcing and respecting the primary ingredient. And then Danny Bowen. And like from, from Danny, I've gotten so much of this like not being afraid to get super creative with it. You don't have to follow the existing rules and like big loud flavors. Like I've always been really into like a lot of use of like chilies and acidity and umami and all of that. And like he had this almost like psychedelic approach to Chinese food that I thought was super cool. And the first time I ate there, I was like blown away. And so when I got that book, I think not only is it like a great cookbook that has a ton of fun recipes in it, but it's really well written and tells his story in a way that I really connected with. Cause he talks about like, his early cooking jobs and getting hazed and just like how it sucked. And at that time my job kind of sucked and I just like it, it got me through that. So I, I love that book. I think it's a great cookbook. You somehow get a call right after this interview that you've just won an all expenses paid trip to eat at your dream restaurant. And mm -hmm. when you get there, there's someone you've always wanted to talk to waiting to have dinner with you. What wow. is that restaurant and who is that person? Okay. Person can be living or Living or dead. I say living, living or, dead. or dead. Okay. Wow. These, these are like really good, deep, impactful <laughs> questions. I got to think about it. All right. I'm just not going to overthink it, but I would say I'm going to Asadori Shibari because I have yet to, to be there. I went to San Sebastian a few years ago and it was like one of my favorite places to eat in the entire world. I love 
the culture around food in the Basque country. I love the pride that they take in their food and, you know, to have a legendary place like that, that's, that's open fire and kind of, I just think it, it sounds amazing. I, I definitely want to eat there before I die. And then the person I'd probably have Michael Pollan. I think that he's uh-huh. just like such an interesting guy. He's such an intellectual. I think the conversation would be fascinating. He knows food. He, he knows food very deeply and like his philosophy, I think really aligns with mine. And what I admire about him is how he's managed to kind of like take a philosophy around food that I think is really impactful and like achieve that at a very broad scale without being a restaurant chef. And this is, it. you know, it's kind of fits in line with some of the stuff that I'm trying to do. So I think he'd be, he'd be really cool. He also just seems like a cool guy. Last question for you, Miles. I, I, we, we talked about this briefly, I think, in, in some of our other, you know, topical discussions here, but I always ask my guests, what do you think chefs can be doing better to help the next generation? Mm-hmm. And I just think it's an important, like, drum to keep beating. But I guess if there's something, is there, if there's something that you haven't brought up yet that I think that you would either like to see playing out a little bit more in the industry or, or would have helped you when you were early, I'd love to hear what you think on that topic. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a lot of chefs who came up in restaurants that were like kitchen confidential style, and they just repeated that cycle. And I think having the, you know, it takes like strength of character and bravery to like break that cycle. But I think that's a really, really, really impactful thing that you can do. Because then you're going to have a bunch of chefs that come up under you that know a different system and can take that forward. Yeah, so it's almost like, it's not just helping you, but it's like, it will help. It will help numerous more than, than, than just yourself. That's an interesting way to frame it. Yeah. Anything else, Miles, I I guess, tell people where, where you want them to, to go get in touch with you or to follow along or sign up for stuff. Yeah. It just, if you go on Twitter, miles underscore cooks, that's probably the best place if you want to get in touch with me or just milesnyder.com is my website. It has all the other socials and email and everything else. So yeah. This has been a blast, man. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Well, well, here we are together again at the end of another episode of the Repertoire Podcast. If this is your first time listening, this is a show for hospitality creators who want to think better, increase their performance, and believe that it's possible to take lessons from what others have already learned. I am your host, Justin Kana, and if you're new here, I'd like to personally welcome you to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Friendly heads up to check out the show notes inside of the description of this podcast if you want to check out previous guests, links to specifics that got brought up in this episode, as well as other helpful content that we create and share here online because everything we do is focused on helping you along your journey. If you don't have a ton of time, the best place to start is with some value sent straight to your inbox every single week. It's called the Repertoire Newsletter, where we share knowledge on sharpening your skills, asymmetric upside, and exploring the industry beyond the status quo. If you subscribe, we'll keep you up to date on trends that are shaping the hospitality creator ecosystem. We'll share discounts on gear that we find, as well as content that we've been producing ourselves and helpful articles that we've already read and decided are worth your time. Last up, if you want to connect with other industry professionals in the Repertoire Pro community, you want to check out courses like Total Station Domination or download free tools that we've created, you can learn more at joinrepertoire.com. That's J-O-I-N-R-E-P-E-R-T-O-I-R-E.com. The only ask from me is that if you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate a review of this show on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify to help the podcast universe know that people like us like shows like this. Regardless, I'll see you in the next episode. My name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one.